0: Good morning, church. Open your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Before we kick off this morning, I want to ask you to bow with me in prayer. Father, we've sung it this morning uh, that we believe that you are in this place. We also believe the promise that you have made that when we chose you to be the Lord and King of our lives, our hearts would be your place you become live inside us in a very unique way and we don't fully understand that but we believe it and we are trying as a church family as disciples of Jesus Christ to live that out to welcome you to have all the room in us you want so please do that uh, move among us today through this message in spite of this message even and make yourself known and heard but we're not the only ones doing this today. Father, this morning we want to lift up the gates of the city church that's meeting out on Interstate 10, and uh, they're trying their best to be uh, your disciples, to make you Lord, uh, to make the Bible the the foundation for how they hear you here. Um, Spirit, please bless their service today as you bless ours, for we ask us all in Christ's name and everyone's sin. Daniel 6 is where I'm hoping that you'll be. But I'm going to start by asking, do you know a man by the name of Harry Truman? Now, not the 33rd president of the United States. The man that's on the screen actually lived one mile from Mount St. Helens in the early 1980s. Just as it was about to blow its top. Just as it was about to shed all over that part of the country its hot, hot lava and destroy hundreds of thousands of acres of land and people who didn't listen. Harry Truman was one of them. He lived at the base of Mount St. Helens, but he said in a TV interview, That smoldering mountain behind me is a mohill, and the people are acting like a bunch of whips around me. It was the famous last words of a man who was sadly buried under 80 feet of ash and died. If you had to come up with just one word to describe that, what would you call it? stubborn, stubborn. This man's name is Hiro Onoda. He fought in the Japanese military on the island of the Philippines during World War II. When that war came to a close, Mr. Onoda didn't believe that the war was actually over. And so he remained in the jungle of the Philippines, making maps, detailed battle plans, stockpiling supplies, not for weeks, not for months. Twenty-nine years, this man stayed in the jungle believing that the war was still going on. It took a commanding officer flying to the Philippines from Japan to convince him that it was indeed over. And that's a picture of him finally leaving the island. Stubborn! Some would say Tom Brady's stubborn. The greatest quarterback of all time in the NFL is turning 42. And he's thinking about playing one more year. Much to his wife's dismay. He holds all the records for most career wins by a starting quarterback. 237 of them, to be as a fact. 237.70 is his record as a quarterback in the NFL. 237 wins, 70 losses. 192 wins above 500. And that is more than any other player that's ever played in the game, let alone a quarterback. Guaranteed to be a first ballot qualifier for the Hall of Fame. But his greatest statistic probably ever, his most significant record at least, is that he has led six teams to being Super Bowl champions. And yet he's seriously contemplating a return to the NFL, even though his wife wishes he wouldn't for the second year. Now, the previous two examples could fall under the tag of stubborn failures, but Tom would be in a different category. I would place him in the category of stubborn successes. See, I think you'd agree with me that there is a difference in being defiant and determined. One is an unproductive form of stubbornness, and the other is a very productive form of stubbornness, if channeled in the right direction for the right purposes. Well, this morning... I'd like for us to look at a man's life that um, I would characterize, at least, in the determined category. His name's Daniel. When you read Daniel's story, it begins with him being taken into captivity, along with about 80% of the nation of Israel. The nation of Babylon was responsible. Actually, God was responsible because he was disciplining a nation of people who were very, very stubborn and had been defiant. And he was taking him into captivity for him. Now, in 605, when this happened, scholars' best guess is that Daniel was probably around 12 to 13 years of age. He was brilliant. He was a gifted young man, wise beyond his years. And quickly, David become a, became a rising star in the king's court. See, both he and some of his cohorts had proven themselves as prodigies of their age. And Daniel would say, God opened the eyes of the king to see that. However, at a very young age, the king started asking Daniel and some of his cohorts to do things that they were not comfortable doing. As a matter of fact, he felt like these requests went against what God wanted him to do. And here's how we're introduced to him in chapter 1 of the book that bears his name in the Old Testament. It's a simple sentence, and yet I think it's a mouthful. It speaks everything we need to know about this determined man. But Daniel was determined to not defile himself. Defile in what way, Jimmy? Well, if you read his life story, the king puts food in front of Daniel and his buddies. food that Daniel knows to be unclean by his God's standards, and Daniel and his cohorts refused to eat it. Daniel was determined. He was not going to defile himself in the presence of a holy God. We'll fast forward a few years later, and the king creates this huge golden statue, and he orders everybody in the kingdom to bow down and worship it. And he, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, didn't bow. Why? Because they were determined not to defile themselves in the presence of a living God. Fast forward even more to when Daniel is now an old man. Some say as old as 90 years old. And the other advisors in in the Babylonian court are a little bit jealous of all that's gone on in this man's tenure in their country, in the king's court. And they've had enough of it, so they begin plotting and scheming for a way to trap Daniel to catch him at doing something that would get him kicked out of that court. Daniel writes about it this way, and so they concluded, our only choice of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So they outlaw prayer. They come to the king, and they basically say one day, King... We just don't think that you're getting the recognition you deserve as a leader. Not of the world's power. And so we want to recommend that you issue an edict that for the next X amount of days, all right, no one prays to any God but you. And while they must have hit him on a day when his esteem was a little bit low, and he said, sure, write that thing up, and he signed it. How does Daniel respond when he hears about the edict? Does he boycott Does he circulate a petition? Does he call for the resignation of government officials? Does he sue the government? No. Here's how Daniel responds to his government outlawing prayer. He prayed. When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and he knelt as usual in his upstairs room with the windows open toward Jerusalem and he prayed not once, not twice, but three times a day. Just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. That's determined. If so you'll give me your attention, church, for the next few minutes, I'd like to share with you three observations that I think will enable us, because of our freedom in Jesus, to stand for what's right, to stand for what is good, and to stand for what's holy and God's eyes. I want that for life. Number one, Daniel was determined to do what was right when everybody else around him was doing what was wrong. That's the first observation. We've been looking at how to live in this freedom that Jesus promises us is ours because of his resurrection. Not only did that enable us to look forward to a day when we would have a resurrected body, but he says, no, the resurrection takes place now through the same spirit that raised me, Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. Side note, Ricky came up to me this week. He said, you know what's cool? He said, I put on my phone eight eleven every day to just have one word come up, freedom. Great use of the phone, huh? Am I living in freedom at the moment or am I leaning more towards bondage? And so I have that on my phone as well. But we've been looking at that passage of Scripture because wow, what a powerful passage of Scripture if it's true and we believe it is. And so we're trying to look at how in the world that freedom unfolds itself into our lives. And one of the things is it enables us to not compromise the values that we know are very, very dear to our God. If you're a student, please hear me. Long before you go to a party and the temptation arises where someone's going to hand you a joint or a beer and ask you to indulge with them, you're going to have to have determined in your head and in your heart that you are not going to to defile yourself in the presence of a living God. Long before a boyfriend or a girlfriend puts pressure on you to cross some boundaries that God has established for your benefit, you're going to have to have already determined in your head and in your heart that you will not defile yourself in the presence of a living God, no matter what else anybody's doing. Those of you who are single, long before your heart ever becomes Twitter-pated, With that opposite sex, you're going to have to determine in your head and in your heart that if they're not a follower of Jesus, all bets are off. All bets are off. Even though they may have your heart, what they're wanting, what you're wanting, I promise you, is does Jesus have their heart? That's not just a nice little addition to our lives. It's one of the things that Paul says... Believers in Christ, don't yoke yourselves, especially in marriage, to unbelievers. Every day we're bombarded with all kinds of messages saying, Nah, forget that nonsense. Here's what you need to do. And all of them have a chance of absolutely not just putting a taint in, but destroying our relationship with Jesus. I'm friends right now with a a young man who is making enough decisions in his life right now to absolutely derail him for ever having a relationship with Jesus Christ because he's just convinced he knows better than God. And that all happens slowly. We start listening to things that don't honor Jesus. We start watching things that don't honor Jesus. We start saying things that don't honor Jesus. We start doing things that no follower of Christ has any business of doing because it has nothing to do with Jesus. And long before we're different, the culture around us starts to change along with us, and this, this country we live in starts to fall into disarray. I've watched it in my lifetime, and it's, it's reaching levels in my soul. It never has before. I think the perception of Calvin and Hobbes is right on the money. I saw this little cartoon that said, you know what's weird, Calvin? Day by day, nothing seems to change, but pretty soon everything's different. I've seen that in my own lifetime, and it's breaking my heart because I'm seeing God's values vanish, not just from my country, but from my church. How does that happen? One of the sportsmen's favorite vacation spots when we lived in the mountains of Ruidoso was to find some beach somewhere. And where do you go when you live in that kind of beauty? Well, you go to the sand, all right? And my wife loves it. My girls love that. Me, not so much, but I love them, and so I went. But I love some of the stuff we got to do together there. I mean, combing the beach for sand dollars and starfish and and looking for scallops that we would take home and fry up that night. But probably my favorite is doing a little body surfing on the waves. I never was much of a surfer as far as the board stuff goes, but we'd get our little dinky whatevers, and we'd get on them and try to surf in, or just our bodies. But one thing that was interesting was, we'd, we had this. Um, every year we'd go to Puerto Penasco because you could park right on the seawall, 10 steps, and you're in the water practically. And we'd get in and we'd do all of our water play. And, but before you know it, in about 10 minutes, you would have drifted about 100 yards. Even though the waves were coming in like this, almost always to the east, we would drift. And after about 400 yards, Dad felt uncomfortable enough that we were far enough away from the RV that we needed to pop up and get out and kind of recalibrate and get back up there to the RV. And we do that. We do that several times one day. And finally one day at dawn it dawned on me that, man, this is a lot like me in Christ. But there's this almost invisible tug of our culture that's just always operating. Always operating. And before you know it, if you're not paying attention, you have drifted so far, and sometimes into some very, very dangerous waters, that you can't get out of. Every so often, you've got to recalibrate. And I'm thinking that somebody walked in here today saying, wow, I'm so glad it's Sunday. I'm so glad when we gather together and we take that Lord's Supper because, you know, that's something that recalibrates me. I can just look back at my week and I can go, man, I've drifted. But I'm thankful that I live in and under the grace of Jesus and, Lord, I am back. And thank you that I can come back and that you, you throw your arms out and welcome me back. You need to re- recalibrate this week? Where are you with God? Are you closer this week than you were last week? Can we just stop right now in the middle of the sermon and ask that question and you answer quietly to yourself? Am I closer right now today to God than I was a week ago? If not, hang on. Many of you will recognize the name of one of the most famous writers of children's books ever. Theodore Geisel. It's not coming on? Okay. How about if I say his middle name? Theodore Seuss Geisel. We know him as Dr. Seuss. In the 1960s, long before he became famous, his best friend came to him with a bet. I'll give you 50 bucks if you can write an entertaining child's book using only 50 words. Well, Dr. Seuss thought about it and he asked some qualifying questions about the length of the book. And he says, I really don't care how long it is, but you have at your disposal only 50 English vocabulary words. Theodore Geisel said, I'm in. Two weeks later, he returned with the manuscript for Green Eggs and Ham. Sold over 200 million copies and growing. And I think what it proved to us is that sometimes constraints can be really, really good. One of my elders shot this to me last week. It's of a policeman jumping up on stage, stopping a preacher mid-sentence, and he says, you were preaching a 45-minute sermon in a 25-minute zone. I need to see your license and ordination papers. Man, am I glad that we don't have those here. Constraints can be a good thing when they're honored. Which is why our Father has established boundaries for us, church, because He wants... To enable us to live a life we could never live without Him. Not to hurt us, not to hinder us, but to help us live life to the full. I've experienced a hundred times in my own life that the closer that I am to the Father, the more secure and the more peace I feel in my life. And yet, the further that I drift from Him, the less peace I feel, the less enjoyment that I experience, and the closer to disaster I wind up. Daniel was determined to stay close to his God and do what was right, even when everybody else around him was doing what was wrong. Observation number two. Competency will get you in the room, but character will keep you in that same room. Don't believe that? Just ask a professional athlete who has failed a drug test and it's cost him millions this football season. Or a world winning, World Series winning baseball coach who encouraged his team to steal signs illegally. Or a preacher who has had to sacrifice his ability to influence a church from a mic like this because he gave into Satan's enticement with a woman, not his wife. Daniel determined early in his life. Daniel determined early in his life. I can disappoint the king. I can disappoint those who bow at the king's altar and they eat the king's food, but I will not do anything that disappoints my God. Do you know what we call that? Character. Character. Daniel writes, at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested. Why? Because sometimes when you are a man of character or a woman of character, it costs you. So at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested because he refused to Not pray. Can you imagine that? A government outlawing prayer? Yeah, you you can. But Daniel refused. He determined, I am going to be a man of prayer. And so he was. And it got him placed in a lion's den. The king says to him, may the God you serve faithfully rescue you. Now that's interesting. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed that stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that nobody could rescue Daniel. Wow. Regardless of the cost, Daniel personally pledges his allegiance to God faithfully? Yeah. Well, what does that look like today? One of my heroes when it comes to character is Rosa Parks. You know her story. She represents Jesus in a clear and compelling way because she didn't give up her seat on a bus. Now, she was arrested which was the penalty for doing that, for defying the government that uh, had the similar laws that uh, we knew of in the 60s in our hometown. After her prison stay of violating those government laws, I love this statement that she wrote. Now, when I sat down on the bus that day, I had no idea history was being made, nor was I seeking to make it. I was only thinking of getting home. But I made up my mind. After so many years of being a victim of the mistreatment of my people... And what they had suffered, not giving up my seat, and whatever I had to face afterwards was not important. I did not feel any fear sitting there. I felt the Lord would give me strength to endure whatever I had to face. It was time for someone to stand up, or in my case, sit down. And so I refused to move. Well, no sister like Daniel And like Rosa Parks may be said of us, that we determined to do what was right when everybody else was determined to do what was wrong. Church, the world doesn't need more experts, I'm convinced. The world needs more examples. Would you be one? Competence will open doors for us and get us in the room, but it will be our character, Christ in us, that keeps us there and makes us effective. Observation number three. Daniel was determined to bow first so that he could stand later. This is one that I'm really hoping that you run home with. I think the others are important, but please leave here today with this. His personal model was prayer before protest. And no matter what your political leanings are right now, that should be our model this election year. Prayer before protest. didn't say protest is outlawed by God. No, but prayer is encouraged before any of it. Things are going to get intense between now and November. They're already intense and have been for a long, long time. So before you criticize and confront a mayor or a judge or a senator or a president or protest in any way, I'm encouraging all of us, church, let's be a church that prays, okay? Daniel determined that he would pray first and so that he could stand later. General George Patton said this, you know what courage is? It's fear that said its prayers. I love that fear that said its prayers. When we pray, we're joining our hearts and minds to the creator and sustainer, listen to me, of all things. So tell me what's not possible. When we pray, we are praying to the creator and sustainer of all things. So please tell me what's not possible. Our staff was reminded again this week of John chapter 15. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, I love this blank check. Well, then you just ask whatever you want, and it'll be done. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now we know that's not just a blank check for anything. That's to a select group of people who have determined, I'm going to be in you before I ask anything of you. But I'm going to be in you and allow your words in me. Now let's do some great stuff, God. We just celebrated a man who did that. His name was Martin Luther King, Jr., We know him as a courageous speaker, but he was first and foremost a courageous man of prayer. If he hadn't, can you imagine what his speeches would have been like? I can. I know what some of mine have been like. They just would have been little suggestions about the dangers possibly that our our country was facing because we were living a segregated lifestyle. That, That wasn't the outcome of his messages. They bore the fruit of freedom. Freedom. Because he bowed his knee first. Brother, courageous people who do not compromise their character are capable of taking stands for God and have an impact over the long term. You talk about legacy. Legacy starts with a prayer legacy. They bow before they make their stand. So, when we left Daniel last, he was being placed in a lion's den. We know that the bars of the lions hadn't been released yet because he was still able to communicate with the people above him. There is the king who placed him there suspected. Something was going on among his uh, counselors that didn't smell right. And so his last words that he shares before Daniel is sealed up in this particular cave is this, May the God that you serve continually rescue you. Wow. With confidence I can say that may that be said of me. Jimmy, may the God whom you serve continually rescue you. Probably, no, I can probably say this with confidence. No one in this room has been placed in a lion's den before, not at least to die. But you have been in a courtroom. You've never looked into the eyes of a large cat, but you may have looked into the stubborn eyes of a coach or a teacher. Or maybe the unforgiving eyes of a disappointed parent. Or a mate. You may have never gone toe-to-toe with a lion in Babylon, but I want you to hear this. You will go toe-to-toe with a lion from hell. You will. Peter the Apostle reminds us, so you've got to be self-controlled and you'd better be alert. Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone. Someone anyone to devour. And if I started pointing, I wouldn't have stopped until I got done with every one of us. That's you and 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 you. That's us. Satan knew the habits and practices of Daniel. And so Satan had his minions prepare some mess up, some struggle, some difficulty for this man to have to deal with and started working in those minds of some people that he served alongside in the court and it unfolded in the story that we're talking about this morning. And like he worked in Daniel's life, I'm telling you he's working in ours church. He knows some of you are going to take a business trip in the next couple of weeks and he knows the hotel room that you've already booked. He can't guess the one, but he knows the one you've already put online. And so he's going to make sure that in that room our is viewing material, that no Christian man needs to be looking at. Enticing erotic material that he hopes you will just taste. Because that's all he needs is a little taste for the gills and the shame to just swamp you. And to begin a process of devaluing your spouse that will take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you more than you want, longer than you want to stay. He's seen the argument that you had with your husband, ladies, just before the bath that you took last night. And before you dropped into the bath, you dropped into Facebook, and it just so happens that there was a post from an old high school flame there. And he's wondering how you're doing these days. Even now, as you get your list of things to do for this upcoming week, he's watching what you put down because he's going to try to ambush some of those things that you've got a lot of heart and time and energy put into because he wants to see them go south so that you'll be totally discouraged and blame God more than you do anything else. He's after us just like he was out after Daniel. And it really ticks him off (laughs) that you're back for one more lesson about how to live in freedom because of the resurrection of Christ. To really think that you could stand against culture, really? And stand for life. He hates this. Because you see, you need to know Daniel chapter 6 is an embarrassment for Satan. He hates this text. Because he threw his best at Daniel, and he ultimately failed. Utterly failed. And when he throws his best at you, friend, he will ultimately, utterly fail. If you will stand with the same God, he will. The same God that delivered Daniel is the very same God that will deliver you. Are you going to be defiant? Are you going to be determined to hang on to that God? Darius went to bed that night and he couldn't sleep, the Bible says. He wanted no food. He wanted no entertainment. He was concerned about his his cohort, his friend that was a part of his leadership team, he knew something was up. And so at first sunlight, he wakes up and he makes a beeline to the lion's den. And the scripture says that when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. I love this. Go ahead and put that up, guys. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually, has he been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions and they have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I done anything ever wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted his God. Yea, God. Just yea, God. When he looked into the lion's den, he wasn't torn up. He wasn't devoured. He was chill, baby. And he was praising his God. Now, not so good for the ones who had schemed all this. They were thrown into the lion's den then, and they were lion's treats, baby. They were done. Darius then has some things to say, but we'll get that in a few moments. Let me just give you a couple of quick questions that God wants to ask you if by chance you're under attack now. Here's the first one. If you're under attack, would you please pray? Don't just do something. Stand there, okay? Don't just do something. Stand there and talk to the Creator of our universe about. Some of you are in a mess, and God have mercy on you, and I mean that. People are conspiring against you. People are attaching stories to events that you're involved with that simply aren't true. And they have painted a negative picture that you are not deserving of, and I'm sorry for that, on one hand. Because you're also in good company on the other. Daniel knows what that's like. Jesus knows what that's like. So if you're under attack, I want to encourage you to pray. You keep opening up the door, the window, whatever it is that you open so that you can be in contact with your God. You refuse to waver in your prayers. You are Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you are Daniel in a lion's den. You recruit friends, friends to pray with you. If there's any good thing for this thing here, I'm loving the fact that I can be on this when I'm in the midst of an attack or if I'm in the midst of facing something that's coming up that I just, I know I can't handle on my own and say, Would you please cover me with prayer? Boom, six, eight, 10, 12 people are, are instantly have agreed to, and wherever we are, praying for one another when that happens. We need a prayer team. Second question. If you're in the lion's den now and you feel trapped, would you please trust God, not you? Trust God, not you. God has not abandoned you. He would not allow what's happening to you even now unless it meant growth for you or kingdom growth for someone around you who's watching you. Psalms 34 and verse 7 says this. It's a promise not just for King David but for you. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord, they will not lack any good thing. No good thing will they lack. So let me ask us: have you considered this? Have you considered that maybe God has you in the lion's den to display his power to deliver? That's what happened with Daniel. We ask God, why in the world didn't you deliver Daniel back when he was praying in his room? Why didn't you know before that? When you saw the conspiracy that was going on in that in that king's court, why didn't you stop it then? Oh, why did Daniel have to spend a night in a lion's den? And the answer is found in the very conclusion of the story. Scripture says, "Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and the peoples of every language, and all the earth, may you prosper greatly. But I want to issue a decree." That in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. Well, look at who's getting all evangelistic, right? And he endures forever. And his kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. And he rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lion. King Darius wrote that. Not some prophet of God, not some disciple of God. King Darius wrote that someone who was looking in on some captivity that for a moment Daniel was allowed to live in and under so that his delivery would be a testimony of what God does in this world. And I just want to say friend on behalf of God, if you're in the midst of something like that, I mean you're 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 in the you're in the midst of some that's just Teeth everywhere and darkness and I don't know where to turn if I'm going to get out of this. That's a test. If you're in Christ, that's a test. And to get to the place of testimony, He's got to let you be there because every testimony has a test in the middle of it. And if you will allow God to work in you and through you and make a testimony, who in the world knows that there just might be a Darius looking in on your life right now to see how you're going to react in this test and how God's going to deliver you. That's hard to remember. But I'm going to ask you to try to remember it today anyway. God used the struggle of Daniel to reach the heart of Darius. And God used the struggle of Daniel to convert the most powerful man in the world. I wonder who this week might be posting on Facebook somewhere What God did for Brandon, what God did for Amy, what God did for Jeremiah or Chad or Joyce or Jeremy. Because they determined they were going to follow God. Last question. Have you been delivered? If you've been delivered, rejoice. All right? That's why we come together each week to encourage one another that God's still in the delivery business. That's what He'd do. That's something that uh, probably our uh, children's minister would say, right? But louder. That's what He'd do. He delivers people and He wants to deliver you. So stay right where you are and you hold on. You determine you're not moving, you're not leaving, you're not giving up. You just trust the God who delivers a dead man who's been crucified on a cross and has been in that stinky grave for three days. We've tried to remind each other of that today and I'm just encouraging you one more time, just remember, that's the God who wants to deliver you. And you know what? If we're in Christ, we've already been delivered. Come on, we've been delivered from our sin. We've been delivered from the punishment of that sin. We've had our, our names etched into the book of life. We have a house being prepared for us in the very heaven of heavens. We don't have to fear death. I don't care whether it comes tomorrow or next week or even how it comes because we are children of the living God. That's who we are. So I'm going to ask you to stand up now. <laughs> and I'm going to invite you not just to stand and sing. We do that every week. But I'm to invite you this week to stand with God and for God in whatever circumstances you're about to go out into, church. And you're about to go into some tough ones, I know. But before we go, what do you say we pray and then sing? Father, we come to you asking in the powerful name of Jesus. You know the the week before us that we have, even more so than we do. And we are asking, would you please equip us to be the kind of men and women known for being Daniel-like people. People who stood when everyone else around them was bowing to something else. Help us to stand for you. Right now we're coming to your throne room like you've asked us to do and lifting up these relationships, these difficulties in our jobs, what's going on with our health, and we're saying, God, please, please let yourself be seen in us. You know exactly what delivery needs to take place so that you get the most honor. We're inviting you to do that in us and through us this week. And if you've brought someone here today who's been in bondage, who's been living in the lion's den, is ready to step out and say, enough, enough. I've defied the king of the universe, the father of Jesus Christ long enough. I want to become one of his children today. Please enable him to do that while we stand and while we do sing.